Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Malachi. And if you have not been in this book lately, you'll find it's the last book of the Old Testament. Say, well, we really didn't finish Ezra. Well, we didn't. That's true. Malachi chronologically fits after chapter 6 of Ezra, so that's the reason why we're moving over to Malachi, and then we'll be back to Ezra in a couple of weeks. We're trying to do this in somewhat of a chronological order that they occur historically. So it's Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through chapter 2 and verse 3 this morning. The importance of loving God faithfully. The importance of loving God faithfully. It's one thing to ask ourselves, do I love God? But the better question is, do I love God faithfully? There is a huge difference that God uses the prophet Malachi to bring to our attention. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice, we do honor you by honoring your word. We realize that your word is truth, there are no errors, and Father, that all that you have told us is important. Today I would ask through your spirit that you would enable us to understand the historical background of this truth, and then, Lord, that we would be able to isolate the principles and apply it to our own lives. For your glory, we would ask this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. At times, people probably ask you, they certainly ask me at times, if I believe that Christ's return is soon. I basically understand and know why they're asking that question and I know that they expect a certain answer, and that answer being is, certainly he is coming soon. And they kind of maybe look at me with that understanding and say, you do agree with that, do you not? Well, yes and no. Isn't that a good preacher answer? Yes and no. I do believe Christ is coming. Do I believe he's coming today? He could. Do I expect him to come today? It would not be shocking. Is he coming today? I don't know. (laughs) But surely he is coming. That's the point that's important. In fact, that's, that's something that gets us into sometimes a little bit of a problem. Because we hear so much, well, I thought he was certainly coming last year, and I've heard that he's coming this year, and if you're as old as I am, you've heard all of these dates down through the years, uh, you know, 1984, 1993, the year 2000, 2012, surely by 2015. And I realize people have good intent, but let's be biblical. Christ says, you do not know the hour. Now, here's what I want you to know. Go into all the world and make what? Disciples, beginning at Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part. Focus on that. Could he come at any time? Yes, I believe he could. What's the focus? The focus is be prepared. How am I to be prepared? Be busy about what God has told us to do, and that is to know Him. Be busy about making Him known. Be busy about equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. Be busy about doing God's work. You know that. We've always known that. And that's the part about loving God consistently. What is it that perhaps... All of us, I would say, struggle with this. I know I do. Loving God consistently. 
what gets me off track, what gets me out of focus, because I have expectations. I see circumstances in which I look at and I have concerns about, which gets me off focus of what God wants me to do. Does God love me? Does God love you? Well, certainly He does. But sometimes because of the circumstances and disappointments of life, I'd say, does God really love me? God, if you really love me, and then I put conditions to it. If you really love me, why is this happening to me? Why is that happening to others? Why do I not have answers to this? This is exactly what was going on during the days of Malachi. At the end and the conclusion of the Old Testament time, just prior to the 400 silent years, as we often know them, from basically 400 B.C. down to the birth of Christ and the coming of John the Baptist. What's the background of this? The background is simply this. You will remember that there had been a number of people taken off into the Babylonian captivity. They were the exiles. Seventy years has passed, and the captivity now has accomplished its purposes. Now it's no longer the Babylonian Empire, now it's the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Medo-Persians have said this, you can go back to Jerusalem, and we want as many of you who desire to go back to your homeland and reestablish the temple, build up the temple, build up the city walls. I will give you all the materials and all the money and all the help that you need. Go back and do that. And they went back, according to the prophets, with great expectations. If we go back and build our altar, build our temple, start our sacrificial system, surely the Messiah will come. And He will come as soon as we can go back and enthusiastically get all of this done. The Messiah will come. And when the Messiah comes, we'll no longer be under the domination of foreign nations. They had high expectations. And so 50-some thousand went back. And they worked and worked and worked. Even in the midst of difficulties, they worked and they got it done. And they were so excited because their expectation was, now the Messiah will come. Our Messiah will come and He will deliver us from Persian control. And they waited and they waited and they waited and they waited. And there was no Messiah. Things actually got pretty difficult. And they began to realize, what's the use? What's the use in caring about God? He doesn't care about us. We have all of these promises, but none of them are fulfilled. We really did our job. We really worked hard. And yet we do not see the fulfillment. That's not too far away from us. We have our expectations of what God is going to do. If God really loves me, this is what God is going to do. And we say to ourselves, I will really work hard. And we work hard, and we work hard. And we do that which is right, and we study His Word, and we read His Word, and we share His Word. But nothing really changes. The questions begin to come. Does God really love me? What is it that I'm not doing that would cause God to love me? We begin to base God's love on circumstances. This is what was happening to the children of Israel in Malachi's day. Well, let's look at the point that we want to stress this morning, if you would, please. The time is about 460 B.C. It's close to the 400 silent years. The point is this. God's love for you 
is based on his promise that he does. It is not based on your circumstances. Let me say it again. God's love for you and me is based upon his promise that he says, I love you. And he said it many times. I love you. That is my promise. And I will never stop loving you. I will never leave thee nor forsake you. I chose you before the foundations of the world. I tell you, I love you. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of your expectations, I love you. And yet it's so easy for me to think of God's love for me based upon the circumstances that are around me. Is God blessing me? Are these good times? Is God really doing what I think a good God ought to do? And when we go that way and begin to base God's evidence of his love on our circumstances, we are doomed for failure. Watch this in Malachi chapter 1, if you would, please. The evidence of Israel's wavering about loving God faithfully is seen in the following actions. In verse 1, we read this. The oracle of the Lord, or the burden of the Lord, to Israel through Malachi. God used the prophet Malachi, put an enormous passion on his heart, to address these evidences that was going on. And the evidence of Israel's wavering in their love for God is because he was not meeting their expectations. Isn't it amazing? God can show us and we can experience a thousand blessings. And then we experience a lack of blessings and we believe God does not love us. Isn't that amazing? We have all of these blessings and yet if we don't get one of them, we believe that God perhaps no longer loves us. Well, what's the evidence of that? The evidence with Israel, as it is with us at times, is doubting God's love. I doubt that he loves me. Notice in verse 2 of chapter 1 of Malachi. Chapter 2, verse 1. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? You see, it's God declaring his love for Israel. He had chosen them. They were his people. He had never left them nor forsaken them. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, your reply is, how have you loved us? Notice God's answer. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yes, he was. Who did God choose? Jacob have I chosen, Esau have I what? Rejected. That was the evidence of God's love. The evidence of God's love is that I chose Jacob, you are a descendant of Jacob. You're the children of Israel. I chose you. My love for you is seen as that I didn't choose Esau. I rejected him. In fact, in some of your, most of your translations, it says here that Esau was hated. We know that's a hatred of choice, not as we normally use the word emotionally as hatred. God just simply says, I made a choice. It's his prerogative to do that. Jacob have I loved. Esau then I chose to not love. And Esau's response is, I resent that. 
and then God brings discipline into Esau and his descendants. We know it as the nation of Edom. We'll see that in just a moment. He goes on to say in verse 3, But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. God is just simply saying, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence that I love you. What's the evidence that God loves you and me? The scripture says so. I have chosen you. Ephesians chapter 1. That's the evidence. All the evidence that you and I need. And yet somehow we have the tendency to say, I'm going to base that upon how God treats me if he really loves me. Loving God faithfully then is like loving your spouse. (laughs) Do we love our spouse faithfully, unconditionally, apart from the circumstances? Can I say that I love my wife, Anita, faithfully? I'm working on it. It's awful easy to love according to the what? Circumstances. Sure, I loved you. I married you. And as long as the circumstances are positive, I guarantee you, I even feel your love. What about being a human being and not always being perfect? You see, loving God, yes, but loving God consistently, loving God faithfully, loving God when the circumstances don't appear to be there. Does God really love us when we find that we have cancer? Does God love us when we have an erring child? Does God love us when a friend of ours treats us wrongly? Is our love for God based upon the circumstances? And God is saying, here, look, I chose you. I made a decision. I chose you to love, and I did not choose Esau to love. Notice in verse 4. He says, I love you not only in the past, but I love you in the present. Here's the evidence. Verse 4, Eden says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will tear it down. I will not allow them to prosper, but you I chose, you I love, you will prosper. They may build, but I will tear it down. Men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant. Forever. He says, the evidence of my love is that I'm here and you're rebuilding the temple. You're rebuilding your sacrificial system. I have permitted you to do that. Esau and his descendants, I have not permitted this. And so God is showing them, in the past I chose you, I did not choose Esau. Now you have rebuilt the temple. You've rebuilt your sacrificial system. You're able to worship. I have not allowed Edom to do that. Notice in verse 5. I will love you in the future. He says, your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. There is a day coming when Israel will see God's enormous love for them because God will redeem them as a nation. And he will establish them as the light of the world and the head of all nations in the millennial kingdom. So God substantiates his love for Israel in the past, presently, and in the future. There's a timeless principle here that is good for us. The proof of God's love is not based upon good circumstances. The proof of God's love is that he chose you. And he called you individually to himself in salvation. 
That's all the evidence that you and I need, that God has called us. God will love us. God will never stop loving us. What is the proof of that? Even when the circumstances do not seem to meet up to what I would wish them to be, how do I know? God says, because I chose you. I didn't choose everybody, but I chose you. That it's the evidence of my love. That is loving God faithfully then. We're building the principle. I can love God faithfully because it's not based upon circumstances. It's based upon the fact that He chose me. And He chose you. Therefore, I have the ability by the Spirit of God to love God faithfully when I see nothing. When I feel like everything else is opposite of what it should be. It doesn't appear that God loves me. I don't feel like God loves me. It has nothing to do with it. God says, I love you. That enables us to go about God's work faithfully. Because unless we have that assurance, unless we see that scriptural principle, we will not stay faithful in our commitment to Him. Let me take you to the next level on this. Let's go to verse 6. Not only is an evidence that our faith is wavering as it was with the children of Israel because they doubted His love, but dishonoring His name. Carefully look at this. In Malachi chapter 1 and verse 6, God's question to the priests of that day as to where is his honor and his respect. God says it this way, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? I'm your father, Israel, where is my honor? I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you. O priest who despise, in other words, you take it so lightly, my name. Here's the issue. Loving God consistently is about, do you honor my name? Do you honor my name? Do you hold my name in high esteem? Do I honor you? Now he says to the priest of that day, you don't. You take this so lightly. But you say, how have we despised your name? How? What is the evidence, God, that we have taken your name lightly? Verse 7. You are presently defiled. You are presenting defiled food, unacceptable food upon my altar. You bring your sacrifices, but they're not according to the law. They're not according to my design. You have brought that which is less unacceptable but you say how long have we despised your name you are presenting defiled food upon my altar but you say how have we defiled you in that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised you are required by law to bring the best of the animals you bring me your diseased You bring me those with scabs on them, which was forbidden by the Mosaic law. You bring me your lame. Why? Because you say, it doesn't make any difference. God doesn't love me, so why should I honor him? It's all about me. It's not about honoring God. It's not about honoring his namesake. Verse 8, but when you present the blind, when you present the animals that are blind for sacrifice... Is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, you're presenting these animals. They're already ready to die. 
So you pick them out to say they're going to die anyway. So let's take them and let's offer that to God. Let's offer the worst of our flock. Because God doesn't love us. Where is God? We've come all the way from Persia and we have been 50,000 of us and we have worked so hard. We've put up to the enemies around us. We have given it our best. And the Messiah has not come. We are disappointed. Therefore, we will offer God that which is less than honorable. Notice it. God says this, But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Why don't you take these blind animals and these sick and the lame and the diseased, and why don't you offer them to your Persian governor? Why, you would not do that. Because you honor, you think more of him than you do of me. Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? It's much like Jesus said, because, you know, from 460 B.C. down to the very presence of Christ, they never got it right. You remember in Matthew chapter 15 and verses 7 and 8 when Jesus said, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is what? Far from me. Just for a moment, let's see if we can extract this cultural clothing in this account. Let's isolate the timeless principle. How do you and I honor the Lord in our worship of Him? Now think about it. We're here this morning to worship corporately. This is not the only place we can worship, obviously. But we set aside this time to come and worship corporately. Are we, do I give God my very best? Well, it's not about clothing, is it? We know that. When I came this morning, was I prepared to honor God with my very best? say, well, how would I do that? Well, let's see for a moment. One way certainly would be that, Lord, when I go this morning, I want you to know that I open up my heart. I really anticipate that you are going to take your word this morning and you're going to direct it to my heart and I'm going to be changed. Lord, I welcome that. Lord, if there's something in my life that I'm not seeing that you see is not acceptable, I want you to take your word by your spirit, apply it to my heart so that I can acknowledge it and change. Would that be worship? Yeah, would be. That would be one way of doing it, wouldn't it? Or I can give him something a lot less, like a diseased animal. Well, Lord, I'm going to go this morning because it's the right thing to do. I don't expect anything to really happen in my life. I'm not, you know, you've probably been like myself. I've mentioned this before, and I hate this. I despise this about myself takes all the discipline in my being to stay away from this. When Carl was speaking or somebody else, my mind can just kind of go off into the area of, wow, it's going to be so neat to go home and watch the playoffs today just to get me a bag of popcorn and just kind of relax. And, you know, it's been a hard week and we're starting out a new week. 
And that is just incredibly sinful. Incredibly sinful. What am I telling you? I'm telling you that it's all about me. And God, I will give, I will come. I'll give you a part of me, but you're not going to have all of me. I am not going to come and say, God, make a different person out of me. I don't know everything. And Lord, whatever it is this morning that I need to know for this week to honor you, to obey you, then Lord, please let me know it. It's giving God everything. Let's take it a little bit further. Am I to offer him the best of what I have? Not really. Not really. I'm to offer him the best that I am. It's offering myself. That's what he desires. We are the living sacrifice from Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. We offer him ourselves. Lord, I offer you myself. Live in and live through me. Accomplish your work this week through me. I offer you everything that I am. I offer you all of my strength. I offer you all of my giftedness which you have given to me. I offer you my finances which you have given to me and given me the ability to have. I offer you everything. Without that, I'm no different than the people in Malachi's day. I offer him things other than myself. Notice with me in verse 9. The evidence of dishonoring his name. The evidence of dishonoring God is unanswered prayer. Malachi 1.9 But now will you not entreat? It's God saying, go ahead. Ask me for a favor while you dishonor his name. See if he grants it. Will God grant a request to my prayer when I offer him anything less than all of myself? See if God will be gracious to us. With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. You see, the issue is not, well, I'm not perfect. The issue is not the presence of sin. The issue is, do I tolerate sin in my life? We all know that until we're redeemed, when God gives us a glorified body, we will live with the presence of sin. Thankfully, we have the Spirit of God that enables us to be victorious. That's not the issue. The issue is, do I tolerate sin? In verse 10, worship without value, we would say, Oh, that we were one among you who would shut the gate. God just cries out and says, I wish there was one among you. If, if you will not honor my name, I wish you would shut the gates to the temple, that you might not useless, uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. We have often said that worship is a response to God, but only when that response is really a hot pursuit of God's pleasure. What is worship? Probably in its basic essence is this. 
It is the pursuit of God's pleasure. It's not the pursuit of my pleasure. That's, that's, a, that's a foreign God. You see, we, we, we don't build a relationship with God to make my life simple. God has called us to pursue His pleasure. He is God. Worship is, Lord, I seek. I pursue it with all of my being to please you. That's worship. That's worship at its core essence. In verse 11, far for from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, meaning everywhere, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. What could that mean? It seems as though God is saying from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, everywhere I will be honored among the nations. It's not that if you do not honor me, I will be without honor. I will get my honor. I am God. Here's the problem. You and I miss the privilege of worshiping God. Think about it. If I choose, if you choose to give God something less than what He deserves, God's not sitting in the heavens saying, Oh my, I feel bad because I don't have all the glory. God will get His glory. God invites us to give Him glory. And if I don't, the issue is I have missed that opportunity that only His people can enjoy. And that is the pursuit of His pleasure. Now, He pursues that here. God doesn't miss out. It is, he, it is we who miss out when we dishonor His name. And He says, you continue to, perform, to profane My name. Verse 12. But you are profaning it. Uh, The Hebrew word here is, you are stabbing my name. You are wounding my name in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised, meaning of no value. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. I had all of these expectations. We believe that when we had accomplished our goal here in our homeland, that the Messiah would come. And He hasn't. Boy, how tired we are. There, there is nothing for us. We've done everything we could. God doesn't love us. God didn't come. The word here, it says, and you disdainfully sniffed at it. Uh, We would say in our English culture, our American culture, we just blew it off. 
Have you ever sought to do God's work when you're disappointed with God? Sure. We all have those moments. And what happens when we do that? Our our mental state is this. We just blow it off. I'll give you enough to get by with. I'll give you enough to be respectful. I'll, I'll give you enough so that I'm not realized by other believers that it really doesn't matter to me. Notice in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 12. But you are profaning it. You are stabbing my name. I cannot accept anything less than all of you. I cannot accept anything less than absolute, wholehearted giving of yourself for my pleasure. Wow. Verse 13, you also say how tiresome it is and how you disdainfully sniff at it. Says the Lord of hosts. And then he says, and you bring what was taken by robbery. You've even stolen animals, and you bring them. You bring what is lame. The the idea there is that this is where animals have taken a, a lamb and tore it to pieces. We would say today, what you have brought to the temple to honor God is roadkill. It's horrible, isn't it? When you should be giving me the best of your flock, And that's what he has always asked. This is how you honor my name. You give me of your very best because they belong to me. And so you would not think of giving me anything less. i got to tell you this. This is an actual true story (laughs) that happened when I was, uh, I don't know, and it and I was probably in the fifth or sixth grade. And it was her cousin that did this. But... uh, Best I can remember, it was Valentine's Day. And her name was, the teacher was named was Mrs. Parks. And her cousin, (laughs) surprised it wasn't me, but it was, he brought a box about this size, all beautifully wrapped. And as she opened it, it was full of manure. You remember that, Nathan? Yeah. Oh, she wasn't in my fifth grade class. We had been divorced by that time. Now, the point of that story is this. Did he honor the teacher's name? And you and I would look at that and say, wow, that person needs to be expelled. I don't know what happened to uh, Richard (laughs) over that account. But I wonder, I seriously wonder, my friend, if sometimes I don't bring manure to God. It is a stench when he knows, Don, you are not giving me everything. And bottom line is because... You're disappointed. You're you're disappointed because not everything falls easy. And so this is how you treat me. 
Actually, that illustration perfectly fits because that's exactly how God considered their offerings. It was nothing but refuse. It was the intestinal leftovers after butchering. And God says, I shall smear that in your face. God is a loving God, but he makes it extremely clear to us as his creation. I cannot accept anything other than that which is your best. Now, let's look at verse 14 for a moment. But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord, for I am a great king. says the Lord of hosts. And my name is feared among the nations. The Gentiles honor. Why do you not? Verse 1. And now this commandment is for you, O priest. If you do not listen, if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts. And by the way, are we not as New Testament believers, priests? So I listen carefully to this. Then I will send the curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. This is so important and emphatic. Let me just stress it one more time in verse 1. Let's put ourselves in this situation. I know this commandment is for you, O priest. If you do not listen, If you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord, then I will send the curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. What can that mean? I will curse your blessings. Did you ever think of a blessing being a curse? If I choose to not give God my best, which is me, as a living sacrifice to him. And yet I say, yeah, I know that. But look, I got a job. Look, I have good health. Those are blessings. Maybe you don't have to take it personally. Maybe you don't have to do it wholeheartedly. Maybe it's not true that I have to give him my bear. I can hold a little for myself. God says, your blessings is your curse. Because you are satisfied in giving me something less than all of you. You call it a blessing. Realize it as a curse. Isn't that awesome? That I would consider something to be a blessing from God? And it's a curse. Why? Because I know that I'm holding back and not giving myself totally to God. Do you have any blessings in your life that are a curse? You know, or I know, that we're holding back something less than giving God everything. And along comes a great deal, a great job, great pay raise, great this, great that. Find out our children 
a child doesn't have a terminal disease, it's curable. And we say, oh, thank you, God. Perhaps it's a curse. Because now I begin to realize I can have all of these, quote, what I see are blessings, and still not give God everything. And that is one of the saddest predicaments a human being can find themselves in because there is no pursuit of holiness. I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied with dishonoring God. And how do I dishonor God? I do not give him everything. And yet, I see the blessing. I experience what I call as a blessing. See it again here. I will curse your blessings, and indeed, I have cursed them already. I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. The curse is upon you, and the evidence is that I refuse to let you enjoy worship of me. God holds it off, and God says, I will not permit you. When you profane my name, as the priest brought those diseased animals, yet you as a New Testament believer, a priest in the New Testament, as all of us are, you do not bring me your very best. You yourself, open-minded, open-hearted, ready to receive the word, ready to obey, ready to give God first place. And yet it is a curse. Verse 3, Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces. I will spread just like manure. Because what would they do with the things that they took out of the sacrificial animals the intestines and all that, they would take it out to the gate and dump it outside the city and burn. And God uses that imagery, and you will be taken away with it. Was it not Paul who said, I fear, I fear that I be a castaway? Not that I fear I lose my salvation. I fear the consequences. Even though I may see them as blessings, God says, I will not enable you to experience the pursuit of worship of me. As we close this morning, let me ask this question. What would it mean to you and me if I was sure and I should be from the Scriptures this morning, that I would never be able to give God all the worship that He deserves because I will not give Him everything. Now, some may say, you know, well, I wouldn't lose everything. I'm still going to heaven. That was the same attitude that these Israelites had. It ought to frighten us 
not out of fear of loss of salvation. For a God who has chosen you and me before the foundations of the world and called us to himself through the redemptive purposes of his son who came and died and was buried and rose again. And for God to give us now, presently, we are inheritors. We possess eternal life. And God says, I ask you to give of yourself your very best. And to experience that life of giving of our very best should affect me deeply. Do I give God the leftovers of my time? Think of all the ways that we can do that. You know, we, we can do that multitude of ways, obviously. I can uh, bring my children to church and say, God, the reason I do that is because I want them to be educated. That's not worship. That's giving God something far less. It's not a bad idea. But the wrongness of it is the fact, Lord, I come as a worshiper. Lord, I give you the best I can give you every day because you deserve it. I want to honor you. I cannot honor you if I just think of you one day a week. I cannot honor you by keeping all of my financial resources to myself. It's amazing. It is amazing to me. It has always blown my mind how people absolutely can reject giving of their finances to God and think they have an end with God. It just, it just blows me away. It blows me away. <laughs> I am so thankful I don't know who they are. I don't know how I can handle it. But take all that God has given to us, and most of all are ourselves. As you can read this text over and over, Israel never that generation never changed. In fact, the next generation didn't change, and the following generation didn't change. In fact, it led up to when Christ did come, their Messiah, who was offering them the kingdom because they had not given him themselves. They crucified him, right? Crucify him, crucify. We will have nothing to do with him. I do not want to miss God's best. But I know I will unless I worship him and it is a worship of the pursuit of his pleasure. So the point this morning has been this. God's love for you is based on his promise that he does love you. It's not based upon your circumstances. It's based upon the fact that you and I can always recall, Lord, you do love me. You called me. You have saved me. You have promised never to leave me nor forsake me. You are coming again, and I will be with you forever. Lord, that settles the issue. Those are the truth. Those are the facts. Regardless of the circumstances, it will not detour me from my worship of you. Loving God 
consistently, faithfully. How do I do that? Lord, it's not based on your circumstances. It is based solely upon the fact that regardless of what's going on around me, I will give you everything that I am. Wow. The timeless principles that we should consider from this passage are three. God's love for you, God's love for me, is known by His promise that He does, not your circumstances. Number two, God accepts your worship. He accepts my worship of Him only when it is offered out of a holy pursuit, a holy passion for His pleasure. And number three, God's solution to profaning His name is repentance. Folks, I do not every day give God everything. I want to change. And that change begins by repentance. That change begins by saying, Lord, I see that I was created to worship you, and you deserve nothing less than all of me and my passion and pursuit for you. Anything less profaned you. Lord, by your Spirit, please enable me, equip me, Show me, enable me to give you everything. Let's pray. Father, it is so easy to become sidetracked. It's so easy in our cultural Christianity to be the same that we have always been, but wear a different label. It's easy to become comfortable. It's easy to say, I'm better now than I was a week ago. And yet never consider giving you everything. Lord, in each of our lives, as we would present ourselves to you, for every one of us, it would probably be somewhat different areas of our life that we do not give you wholly. Our time maybe our finances, because of our self-centeredness. And so we lay ourselves before you and say, Lord, here I am. I, I give you myself, but you really don't have all of our attention. And we, we believe, Lord, that perhaps we have because we can count the blessings. But the blessings may be the curses. It may be those blessings that keeps us from saying, no, that's not it. Lord, there is more of me. There is, there is more that I can offer you. Lord, I, I'm finding how to give you more of my heart. So, Lord, never allow me to be satisfied with the blessings. Let me be only satisfied in a total pursuit of your happiness, not mine. Now, Lord, please, may the Spirit of God enable each of us to apply these timeless principles, truths to our lives. 
Lord, that we would not stab your name. We would not wound your name. You will receive your praise for you are God. But Lord, you've invited us to experience what it means to give everything to you. Lord, may we experience that for your glory. Father, perhaps there may be one here today that, Lord, they truly may be a child of yours, but the Spirit of God has just opened up their heart this morning. And they realize that we have become complacent, and and really there is some disappointment. Our spouse hasn't come to know Christ. Our children are not in obedience And we think of all of those things in which we believe you have not done all that you have promised to us. And so we give you the leftovers of our life. Father, it just may be that we still want to give ourselves, all of us. We don't have anything left to give to you. Oh Lord, open our eyes calls us to be the people that you have saved us to be. Lord, in these quiet moments, may our conversation with you be that which honors you. We are needy people, Father. This ministry is needy. We need, Lord, to lay all of our ministry, all of our lives before you. Help us not to profane your name. And Lord, for that one that perhaps has never come to Christ, Lord, may they respond to your spirit And may they repent of their sins. May they place their faith in Christ and Christ alone. And may they surrender it all to you. This moment, from their heart to yours. I ask this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.